Hello, Growth Equation listeners, and welcome back to The Growth Equation. I'm Clay Skipper. I'm here with Steve Magnus and Brad Stahlberg. Brad, what's been the highlight of the week so far? Ooh, that's a good question. Highlight of the week so far, I was in Chicago for a talk on Master of Change and um, panic ordered some sushi via Grubhub on the way back from the airport because my flight was delayed and I was starving, but I didn't want to eat airport food because I really wanted to eat Chicago food. And then I was like just too freaking hungry to even pay attention to the menu. So I ordered way too much sushi. And then I started having doubts because I overthink everything. Like, did I order it from the right place? I should have just been more patient. And then it arrived just as I was arriving from the airport to the hotel. And it was glorious. Um, So that was the highlight of of my week. Do you think that's just because you were comparing to the sushi you had in Newark? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's definitely of a higher quality. Um, I still like brushed my teeth that night. It wasn't so good that I wanted to taste it all night, but it was good sushi. Great. Yum. You want to get, do you remember the name? You want to give the place a little shout out or you don't want to give them any free marketing? You know, they gotta, they gotta pay us for that. It was Osaka Japanese Express, which is part of my doubts. Anything with an express at the end, like after I ordered, I'm like, shit, I should have waited um, to find a different place. But no, they they delivered. There we go. Pun intended. Shout out Osaka Express. Steve, what about you? Give us, give us a highlight. I'm, I'm just here doubting Brad's like sushi taste and experience, but... Um, my highlight, uh, my life is so boring now. Oh, you know what my highlight was this week? Did is- you drink oat milk instead of whole milk? Are you living on the edge? <laughs> I, I did not. I'm not, I'm not here to talk about milk. We already had a whole episode on that, uh, plug, go listen to it to see the results. Um, I gave a talk at a local running club. So, you know, they had their kind of running club get together and, they asked me to come speak, and I said, you know what? I'm all about the runners because that's all I really care about. So I showed up and, you know, gave a talk, hung out, drank some beers, had a good time with the, the runners, talking shop, and um, it was good good times. Got me out of the house. It's good. What did you talk about? You know, I just, I just you know, I, I, I should say most talks and speeches, I do a lot of prep work. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to dial this in. But it was runners, man. Like, they just wanted to know about, like, cool things and running. So I just picked, you know, four or five s- stories that, you know, tie into some sort of lesson that I've experienced and, and just went for it. I think my my notes were a little scribble on a piece of paper and then talked for 30, 40 minutes about it. Nice. Do you get drunk if you have one beer? <laughs> no, Brad. I do not. Well, part of the reason I ask is I don't drink very frequently at all. And now if I have like two beers, if I was like at a social gathering with people I didn't know very well and I had two beers, like it could get ugly pretty fast with like my ability to keep it together. And I'm nearly twice the size of you. So I'm just curious how you how you hold up in those situations. I mean, I don't ever put myself in a situation where I'm more than, you know, two beers deep. So... So you can um, drink two beers. See, Steve, you have a better tolerance than me. 
I'm I'm just here for the next growth equation get together where we throw some back with Brad and see see him get in trouble. That's growth what I'm equation here for. Case race. <laughs> you know, you you got to remember, uh, Brad. Back in the day, I I never did a um, I never did a beer mile, but every year for a couple of years we do a, a a relay, which was a lot more fun because you could just drink a beer and then run your yeah. 400 and then the other person drinks their beer and runs their 400. So, you know, one beer and then I'd run like a 54 second 400. So I figure if I can do that, I can at least drink one and talk. I've been flying economy plus for some of these recent speaking gigs and it includes a drink and I get like a drink on the airplane. And I'm like, am I drunk right now? What's going on? So maybe they just pour stiff drinks on the airplane, but it's really, it's, it's made me concerned. Um, well, it's the altitude too, right? Isn't that, is that, or is that a myth? Well, you're, like you're, in, a, you're in a pressurized cabin, Clay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how science works. You're not climbing Everest. The plane is pressurized. But no, Clay is right. Let, me, let the scientist speak here. Clay is right. Um, I forget exactly, but it's something like it's pressure. It's not pressurized to ground zero, right? Sea level It's pressurized to something like 6,000 ish feet altitude. So for most people, it does have effect. Um, yeah, it, it, it will have an effect. All right. That makes me feel better about myself. Is this a good time to mention I had six beers last night, or is that does that go against the uh, the growth equation uh, the growth equation manifesto? Go, Clay, where is your sleep score? It's got to be in the it's got to be in the garbage now, man. It's bad. It's real. It's bad. It's bad. But you, you know, I'll give I'll give you this. Uh, I, I speaking of sleep scores, um, never if you trust your tracking device, never wear it after you have a kid. Because your sleep is just awful, right? And then you look at your watch and you're like, oh, it's going to tell me it's awful because it is, I woke up every 90 minutes or whatever have you. And sometimes the sleep score tells you you slept great. And you're like, that's when you know. You're like, these things are worthless because yeah. I got zero hours of sleep and it's telling me I had a great night and you just throw it away. Yeah, that's my thing on the sleep trackers. I feel like it's not telling me anything I don't know. Like I didn't need a I didn't need a tracker this morning to be like you did not sleep well. I just the knew one, I didn't sleep well. The one instance that I've seen sleep trackers really help people, ironically, is related to alcohol. And if people need motivation to drink less than they are, and that's important to them, I think a sleep tracker does a really nice job of reminding you, like when you have a drink or more than a drink, you, your sleep can be affected. Um, so that's where I've seen it help people like but six drinks you're clearly choosing to drink <laughs> yeah i didn't it wasn't an accident <laughs> i was at a concert to be fair you know Dr drinking as social communion we we linked to an article in a recent newsletter yeah. um the the case for drinking or like the case for alcohol and it was really interesting it's by this um oh what's his name i'll have to go back like edward sing i think edward singerland I can find and yeah. he's, he's a professor. It was in the sun magazine and, um, he's a professor of philosophy and religious studies, I think. And he essentially like very clearly says that if you have uh, a challenge with substance use disorder or a family history of substance use disorder, this article is not for you, but if not, he essentially wrote like a manifesto in defense 
of getting trashed a few times a year, so long as you're doing it in a community setting with some ritual with friends. Like he, he wrote about it as if it were like a religious experience um, or like an opening up of, um, of, of ritual and a rite of passage. Uh, I don't agree with everything in the article, but it was an interesting take. It, it's yeah. the it's the equivalent of going to see God in a workout every couple, you know, a couple <laughs> times a year. You also got to go see God by getting plastered. Apparently, it was Edward Edward Slingerland. There you go. Thanks for that. Yeah, we can yeah. Um, we can link that in the the show notes. It's a good article, but I just it's funny. I discussed it in this group that I have here in Asheville, like a little journal book group. And, um, we, we decided that like, we need to just like go to a, a camping trip once a year and just get plastered together. But then I remembered like how hungover I get after I have two drinks. Uh, so it became less appealing. Do you guys want to hear about a preposterous running drinking event that someone proposed recently when I was at a bar? Yeah, let's do it. And then let's get into the main episode. <laughs> Listeners stay with us. We can also always cut this part um it's this person was like it's called the century club and the idea is can't in one week can you run a hundred miles and drink a hundred beers <laughs> oh no no the answer is no <laughs> steve just made a face like maybe <laughs> oh my god i'm doing i'm doing That's, the math here Steve, that is over 12 beers a day yeah you'd have to you'd have to space it out Quite a bit. No, you can't do that. I mean, you would I have think, to. You would have to commit to. No, you just can't. Sorry. I think you front load. I think I've thought a lot about this. I think you, you front you, load the running. <laughs> you do like a marathon each of the first four days, and then you're yeah. done with the running. Yeah, and then you have to drink a hundred beers in three days, Clay. No, you, no. <laughs> yeah I, I mean i agree on front loading the running but you can't go from like zero you'd have front load the running with like well sipping as here's you're going who, along here, here's who could here's who could do this and and i'm not suggesting that anyone try drink responsibly something that we've discussed also in a previous episode is the link between substance use disorder and ultra marathon runners yep and i think if you found someone that was on their way to recovery and ultra marathon running was a big part of the recovery. <laughs> it would not be good for the recovery, but that would be the person that would have a chance at this epic event. Someone with a very high alcohol tolerance who is also an ultra marathon runner. But um, I do not think that anybody should consider the century club. <laughs> there we go. All right. Yeah. It doesn't see, it does not seem like uh, you'd feel great on the eighth day. Not setting yourself up for success. No, not not setting yourself up for success. Okay, great. Well, we can get into <laughs> uh, a more uh, sciencey, a topic that's more down the usual uh, growth equation pipeline, I would say. Though before we do a quick announcement, I'd like to say that we have a Google Voice number now. Uh, in case someone doesn't make it to the end of the episode, I wanted to put it here. It's 646-893-5903. 646-893-5903. So if you have questions for Brad or Steve or myself or anything you want to hear us talk about, call it, leave a message. Um, and we can may even include your voice on the show. If you don't want your voice to be used, just say that and then we'll just use the question. But I thought it could be a fun way to uh, get you guys more involved. 
uh, hear directly from from the audience and and what you guys are curious about. So that being said, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I just want to give a shout out as I Google search this. It's been done. The the hundred hundred has been done. So according to podcast, who is it? Right, according to to a article in the Portsmouth Herald, <laughs> Matt Gamble completed the hundred hundred challenge, and he raised funds for charity while doing it. So way to go, Matt! Um, in 2020, during the pandemic, and apparently he decided, hey, nothing else was going on during the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> I'm gonna, ta- I'm gonna take this on. Is so, Matt Gamble still with us? <laughs> they wrote an article about him. He said the adrenaline pushed me through the last six miles. Um, <laughs> lots of motivation. Jesus, Matt. I just felt like with everyone locked inside, running is the perfect social distancing activity. Um, but where does the he, alcohol come in? Just the despair? I, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, and, and you know what, this is some credit here. He was not a runner in school. He was a high jumper way back graduating high, high school he, in 2010. And, he was definitely a drinker, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Oh, I'll, here's the drinking quote. The drinking put myself through hell. Well, all right. So, Tell you what, he's probably not going to get spots on any of the so-called wellness podcasts. So maybe we should give him. We should. We should yeah. give him some time. Yeah. I, I, I think we should. I mean, this is every day he drank two gallons of water as well as more wow. Pedialyte to uh, compensate. So there you go, Matt. Way to go, Matt. Matt, if you're listening, call 646-893-5903. We want to hear. We want to hear what this was like. Oh, man. Well, it feels like a great transition into today's topic about self-discipline and self-compassion. This is, you know, this is a thing that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast have thought a lot about. I know the three of us have thought about. It's like, how do you mix those two things? We all have, you know, we all have a certain way we want to be. And getting from where we are to where we want to be requires discipline. Um, but if you're doing something that's ambitious and hard, you have lofty goals, you also have to understand that you're not going to achieve everything that you want to do every day, right? There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be failures. And so it's figuring out where that balance is, right? Mm-hmm. So like on the days when, you know, I always, sorry, Brad, but I go to running cause I've done some marathons on days when I have a marathon training plan and I'm like, I don't really want to run today. I got to have the discipline to get out the door. Um, But then, you know, on days when if I'm two and a half months in and there's a day where I really can't get myself out the door, something's hurting, you know, or I can't hit my paces I need to hit. I need a little bit of that compassion of like, okay, maybe, maybe today we just, we scrap the program and we sit it out. Um, But you have too much self-compassion. You're not going to get done what you want to get done. And if you have too much discipline, you're going to burn out. So it's like, how do we find that balance? So Brad, you originally, you originally, brought up this topic. So I'll kick it to you first. Um, how do you think about striking that, that balance between self-discipline and self-compassion? I think it's a hard discipline to strike. Um, and I think it's a really important one. The, 
extreme example where I really learned the importance of this is when I was experiencing a pretty substantial period of depression. And part of what makes depression so hard is your mind-body system just doesn't want to do anything. Um, beyond doesn't want to do anything, doesn't feel capable of doing anything. Yet, for many people, the best way out through a therapeutic setting is something called behavioral activation. We've written about it, we've talked about it, but it essentially says like you just kind of have to force yourself to get going. But man, does that take a lot of self-discipline if you are feeling depressed. Um, so that self-discipline is easier if you're not judging yourself for how you're feeling. So if you can also tell yourself, this is really freaking hard. I don't want to be feeling this way. I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I'm not a broken person. My brain is not broken. This is just something that happens to me occasionally. I'm going to be really kind to myself because this is so hard. I've got my own back and I just need to get going. Um, and I think that if you can't do the being kind to yourself part, then what happens is you just beat yourself up for feeling however you're feeling or for, in less extreme cases, missing the workout or not showing up for your friends or family or work or whatever it is. And you take a negative, which is you didn't do the thing, and you turn it into a double negative, which is you didn't do the thing, and now you're judging yourself for it. Uh, there's actually some great research done by the psychologist uh, Kristen Neff that shows that individuals who have higher degrees of self-compassion and self-compassion skills are better able to weather challenge and show higher levels of resilience. Uh, and I think the reason for that is in the, the words of Steve, like doing hard things is hard. And it's even harder if you don't have your own back. Uh, but if you can learn to have your own back, and you know you're not going to judge yourself when things don't go well or when you're off, then you can show up and step in the arena um, and it almost like empowers you to then be self-disciplined. So that's how I think about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think about it similarly. I, I, I think it's like the context and nuance of it. Um, I almost see it as most of the times I need to, I need the discipline to get going. That's where that needs to apply, like get started, get out the door, get to the track, get get going on the workout or get started writing. And then I need the compassion in the results after the fact. Well, after I've kind of muddled my way through it, um, if I needed to pull the plug and the workout is over, like that's where the kind of compassion comes through on that side. And it's like marrying those two, as Brad said, I think the other thing is like the context, you know, determines it. So I'm going to have a lot more, it's going to vary a lot more if I'm looking or staring down a, a easy run that I'm just trying to get in. That balance is going to be a little bit different if I'm in the middle of a marathon race that I've trained for, for months on, right? in terms of the discipline and, and compassion during the thing. Um, so I also think it's it's a framing exercise of like, what's the endeavor, what's the challenge you're taking on and how much of where do you need to sit on this discipline versus compassion side? Because the last thing I, I wanna be doing, you know, mile 13 in the marathon is sitting there being like, it's okay, Steve. Like if, if you need to like walk, you need to walk, right? 
that won't work for me. It might work for somebody else, but like, that's not going to work for like my mentality of like racing. I bring a lot of energy and intensity to racing. And my whole goal in racing is to like build that, build that, keep it at bay or under control until I I really need it. So like having some compassion there in the midst of it probably won't work very well. So I need to understand that on the, on the other hand, if a training day isn't going well and I need to bail on a workout, like I need that compassion almost instantly to make sure that I don't spiral negatively and think that my fitness is gone and I'm, I'm lost all because like one workout went poorly. Yeah. There's also, I feel like there's a way to think about compassion, self-compassion before an exercise or something that is almost, um, about setting expectations. Like you can have compassion after the fact, like, okay, I didn't do exactly what I wanted to do. But I think I'm I'm thinking here specifically of like, if you go into a week, say you have a week of workouts and you want to work out seven days and you sort of say to yourself, I know I may not hit all seven and have a little compassion beforehand. You're like, okay, I'll be happy if I just hit five. This is like some work out of, um, I think from Penn. It's called Katie it's, it's Milkman about, did this. Yeah, yeah, and it's about like mulligans. How if you go into a week with and you're expecting to work out seven days, and you say I'll be happy if I hit five, you actually will be are more likely to hit seven because you've like set up the expectations that I have a two I have like two days worth of buffer. Versus if you go into it without that compassionate attitude and being like I have to hit all seven days, you're less likely to hit seven days. So it's interesting to think about self-compassion on that on the front end of it too, almost as like a mindset shift type of thing. It allows you to build some slack into your into your approach, I think. Yeah, what I'm hearing is there's three times that it, it's helpful. So one is as a preventative or on the front end, which is building slack. The second is when it's actually time to do the hard thing, which is like knowing that you have your back and you're not going to judge yourself if you fail or if it doesn't go as you hope. And then the third is after you've done the thing and the results come in and if the results are not what you want, then being able to have uh, self-kindness and a short memory about those results so you can get back on the wagon. May I ask you guys a question about this with regards to, and I hope this isn't too inside like book writing, but I think it's, I think writing is an interesting thing to think about in this context because like if you have the discipline to sit down and write, but nothing comes, how do you guys think about that? Because like running, for instance, you have the discipline to either get out the door or you don't. And if maybe you don't hit your paces, that's that's fine. Or you don't hit exactly the mileage you want, but at least you're still like moving forward in a way. Sometimes with writing, I can be like, all right, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to get in my 45 minutes and just nothing happens. And so then in that moment, it's like, well, it, is that okay? Because I have a zero, I have zero product to show for what was my quote unquote discipline. So, so Brad and I think are different on, on this regard. Brad tends to write, and he can correct me if I'm wrong. Brad tends to, you know, divide how many days he has and write roughly that many words or pages or whatever he needs to do to get to the end of the book. I'm very much more streaky, <laughs> meaning like some days I'll crank and get a ton done. And other days I'll be like what you just described there, Clay, and uh, stare at the page or my computer and get absolutely nothing done. And 
that can be hard, but I kind of frame it as like, I sat down, I put myself in this space. I like gave the effort and it just wasn't there today. And it doesn't mean I didn't move forward. It meant I wrestled with ideas and I found a lot of ways that those ideas didn't match up to what I was trying to get at. And often at the end, like it during those days, for example, because I go through a lot of them, um, you know, once I've sat there for an hour or two and nothing has come, I'll often get up and go for a walk or a run or something, just kind of clear my my mind and get rid of that frustration of like having accomplished nothing, basically. And during that, I'll, I'll try and process it a little bit and be like, okay, you know, where did I find didn't work? Why, you know, where did I find that like the path isn't the path that I thought? Like, where am I struggling on? And I'll just write those things down and be like, hey, I thought this was the path forward. I thought this was how I was going to connect these ideas. I thought this was the next section of the chapter and it didn't work. And then I'll step away from like that section and go write something else uh, for a while and then come back to it. And often you come back to it, it, it comes. And the other thing I would say is also in those spaces where you sit down and write something is have somewhere else to go so you feel productive. So for instance, if I'm writing a book, nothing's coming often. What do I do? I switch to a newsletter that I know will be coming up in a couple of weeks or next week or what have you pick a topic. I kind of know something that's I'm excited about and I just crank out something in like 15, 20 minutes so that I at least feel like, okay, something, you know, I got a little workout in. I have something to show for it. What about you, Brad? I, to Steve's earlier point on a big project, like a book project, um, I do just say that I have like a minimum number of words I'm going to write. And then if I have a good day, I can write more than that minimum number, but I never write under that minimum number. I think my challenge is I struggle with having good first drafts and this forces me not to. So even if what I write is complete crap, it just forces me to like get something on the page and then I can come back to it the next day and decide if I want to try to salvage it and edit it or if I just trash it. And on the days that I just trash it, I'm fine with that. But generally there's like at least a couple sentences or a kernel of an idea that, um, that sticks around. And then for non book projects, um, once I have an idea, I just write it. And what I find is that as long as I write very close in proximity to the idea, I never struggle with getting something on the page. Um, sometimes I can't write in close proximity to the idea, but those are ideas I often just don't pursue in the written format. So like when I pitch a piece to the New York times, for example, or write something for the newsletter, um, I just write it. Like I have the idea and then I write it and, and it just happens. And I know that if I have enough space throughout the week, I'll get at least one good idea that I can write. And then that covers the newsletter plus the, the stuff I do for newspapers. So I think that's an important distinction because like when you're writing articles or newsletters, often the way it works is the idea comes across your head, blah, blah, blah. And you just can just crank on it because like it's something you've been thinking about for a while or researching or what have you. A book is harder to me to get that kind of momentum often because you're holding so many different ideas at once. 
in so many different ways that they have to connect or fit together or flow. And often what you think in your head of how it's going to flow and connect from one chapter to the next or one idea to the next or bridge things together isn't how it works in the page. Well, if you're writing a one-off newsletter, like all you have to do is like make sure it's streamlined enough and it's more about like the clarity versus like connecting the idea to a bunch of bigger things. So it presents itself different problems. And I would argue like even contrasting Brad and I's, you know, uh, approaches to book writing there. I think the similar thing is your approach to exercise or workouts. I mean, Clay, you mentioned the research, which is valid and true. Like if you give yourself a mulligan, it generally works better. But I'll, I'll tell you a hundred percent when I was training at a high level, especially early on, like especially early on when I was in high school or what have you, it was more important for me to get the streak in than to like give myself an out. Because often when, especially early in high school, when you're ingraining that habit in that pattern, like running every day or running six days a week or whatever your, your thing is, like gets you into that mindset of it's normal. And for me, that was super valuable. Now, once I was used to that, I could benefit from like the mulligan idea. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, mm -hmm. yeah. it's okay to take a day off. Like you're going to be okay. But when I went from, I remember it clearly, when I went from junior high, when I'd never run further than two miles to high school, when we were running, you know, up to 10 miles or whatever, like I remember the first time our, our coach said, oh yeah, you guys should run on the weekends. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like, what are you talking about? You know, I need those off days. And it's like, oh, just get used to running, you know, six days a week and seven days a week. And just like diving in and not giving myself out really allowed me to establish that pattern. So it it varies a little bit based on your, your context situation and where you're at. Yeah, it's very case by case. To, so for people who are listening to this, I'm sure some people are, we're going to have a spectrum People are going to be on a spectrum, right? Some people are going to be like, I'm way too disciplined and I'm, I'm on the verge of burning out. Other people are going to be on, on the other side of like, I just can't get myself to do the things that I am trying to do. So do you guys have like techniques or strategies or mantras that you use for either side of that coin? Like if you're, if you're doing too much, is there something you tell yourself to get yourself to back off the gas a little bit? Or if you have the opposite problem, you're trying to get yourself motivated and you just can't. Are there are there techniques and strategies you use there? I'll go quickly first. Um, yes. Yeah, so if I'm trying to do something and I just can't, the technique and the strategy there is, uh, you know, like Rich Roll says, mood follows action. Like it doesn't matter how you're feeling right now. It doesn't matter that you're not feeling motivated. It doesn't matter that you're not feeling inspired. It doesn't matter that you're not feeling like you have energy. That's fine. That's just part of being a human. Um, it's really hard sometimes to feel that way. And I can understand and accept that and got to get on with the show. So take those feelings along for the ride, get started, try to break the inertia. So my talk track is always like, all right, like you're not feeling motivated and it's going to be harder to activate today, but like you still got to give yourself a chance. And I've just lived through that experience of not feeling good until I get going enough times that I just kind of know, like, I know, I wish that it wasn't so hard to activate sometimes, but I know that I can if I just force myself into action. Um, so that's the strategy there. Holding myself back is harder, to be honest. And I think here, um, having like 
constraints is really helpful. So having limits on how much I'm going to put into something um, is good. For example, like it's the most, this is a pattern across the things I do, but it's by far the most um, concrete is in my strength training. My coach will often write like 77 to 81% of max. And all I see is 81% of max. <laughs> like I don't have the discipline. And, and to me, it's the discipline, not the compassion. I don't have the discipline on a not so great day to sit at 77. Um, and that's something that I'm working on uh, because you got to be able to like respect your body and chasing an extra couple pounds makes no sense. And I know that. But what's been helpful is actually telling my coach, be like, don't write the range. Like when I'm in a well of training, write the low end of the spectrum and we'll just hold myself there. Because I know if I see a range, my brain's just going to go to what the higher end is and I'm going to put the math in my calculator. And especially during strength training, like where I know I'm going to make the lift and the issue isn't making the lift. The issue is trying to make the lift at an RPE seven, not an RPE eight or nine. Uh, it's very hard for me to hold myself back. Yeah, I, I I think I would echo those two. Um, some different ones I would I would add in there to to get going. I always find it helpful to tie the activity to something else that I'm already doing or that's already in my day, right? So if I, for example, um, if I want to lift and actually, you know, often for preventative injury, preventative or rehab things. I'll tie it to a specific like thing that's already in my day. Like I'm going to go, you know, uh, lift some weights or do my rehab or do my calf exercises, you know, um, at X time when I'm doing Y thing that's in my, my day, like just tie it to something that's already there. Um, the other thing that I think really helps for getting going is changing the environment. So if I feel like really low on kind of activation energy, then for instance, if I don't want to get out the door for a run, I'll change the route. I'll drive to a park. I mean, Clay's seen a couple of the parks that I've run, I run at. Like if I haven't been to one, I'll go to the other one or I'll say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to treat myself today and I'll drive the 15 minutes to a further, uh, a park that I haven't run at for a long, long time. That's a little further out. So you just like change the environment. And I do the same thing with writing. Although, you know, with a kid, I can't just go drop things and go to a coffee shop, but I'll go from working out my desk to, you know, working in, the bedroom or lying on the floor working or sitting on the couch and just try and write in different spaces because, you know, there's all sorts of research that shows like environment invites action. And if you can change the environment, sometimes like the muse will find you or the motivation will find you and you'll get going. And then on the other side, you know, I'm much like Brad um, on, I really struggle, especially in things that I care about to kind of pull the reins back. So two things that kind of work for me is um, I try and create a little bit of distance. So one of the tricks, especially in athletics that works is I sit there and I say, okay, what would I tell, you know, X, Y, or Z athlete I coach. And I name the athlete because I think it's really important to like bring some more, uh, I don't know, 
color to it so that you under it feels realer. So if an athlete was in this specific situation asking me, should they do this workout or should they do this long run or should they keep pushing through X, Y, and Z, what would I tell them? And then I'd say, okay, I tell them that. So like, you should do the same, Steve, like just follow that advice. And then the other thing that I, I do that I think helps is, um, I remove, I try and remove the thing that is driving the inability to kind of pull back. So if I notice that I'm like pushing myself or I'm worried about pushing myself into fatigue um, or overtraining because I'm running too much or pushing too hard in a workout, I try and remove the thing. So I'll stop tracking miles run, right? I'll, I won't run with a watch. I have enough routes. Like I'll go run a route that feels approximately an hour or nine miles or what have you, but I just won't have a watch. So it's not recorded anywhere. Um, or during a workout, instead of like taking the splits so that I try and beat them, I just don't take the splits. And, you know, maybe at the beginning with GPS, like I'll start the watch individually, but I won't split the 400 or the 800 or the mile repeat I'm doing. And I'll just be like, no, I'm going to look at these after and see what they are afterwards. And often that like shifts the, the motive just a little bit, or sometimes I won't even look at them afterwards. I'll be like, I'm not even taking splits for the entire thing. I'm just running hard to tree jogging until the next tree and running hard again to the next. Like you, you take away the thing that is creating the compulsion. Mm. Those are so good. I love those. Um, it's yeah. I mean, just to sum up what you guys touched on there, it was uh, the first thing Brad said, I love is like, don't fight the feeling. Like, I think the idea that if you, if you aren't feeling motivated, you think you have to change how you're feeling and like, don't fight it Just bring those feelings with you. The second thing and something Steve touched on too, which is, there's discipline in doing less. Actually, I think we were sort of, con, sort of um, characterizing discipline as something that makes you do more. But there's actually discipline in like cutting yourself off before you completely burn yourself out. Um, third, there was context switching. Like if you can't get motivated, change up your. Like maybe you can't write in the living room. Go to the bedroom. I love that. I use context switching a lot. Uh, Self distancing. The fourth technique that Steve talked about, which is like, you know, ask yourself what what advice would you give to you know, a teammate or a friend, how would you handle this if it wasn't, if it wasn't yourself? And then fifth there, like remove, change the motivation or remove the thing that's, that's making you stressing you out. Um, those are great. I would add that one that's thing that I do, I always say that like the, the best productivity investment I ever made was just like a little stopwatch because sometimes if I can't get started, I'll just set a timer for 10 minutes and I'm like, I'm going to do 10 minutes. And then when it stops, I'll allow myself to reevaluate and stop doing the thing if I don't want to do it anymore. And usually after I've done the 10 minutes, I'm like in a groove and I just keep going. But it's just setting the watch as like an act of getting me to start um, in a way that I probably otherwise wouldn't if I didn't if I didn't set the timer. So I, I love that, Clay, because I sometimes do a variation of this. This is the track coach nerd variation. But all when I sit down to write and if nothing's coming, I'll say I'm going to do a workout and I'll be like, we're going to do three by 10 minutes with three minutes rest. And I'll just get, <laughs> I'll get my running watch out and just split. And, and, <laughs> I love that. 
and that way I know I'm like, hey, if I got nothing at 10 minutes, I get a, I get a rest period and then I'll come back at it. And often what happens, maybe not even the first go, but like eventually stuff comes to you. So I'm, I'm all about the watch use. I like that. The interval approach to getting started. Like we talk about the interval approach to doing work, but also like giving yourself a couple, a couple shots to, to get going. I think the only other thing that I'd add is, um, in challenges where there's a environmental or structural component. So something that you can't control. I think it's really easy to get caught up in dual thinking or like extreme thinking which is, this is out of my control. Anything I do won't matter. So why even try? I'm just going to throw my hands up and be a victim. Or the other side, which is personal responsibility, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Um, you know, it's not the situation, it's what you think about the situation, which is complete and utter bullshit if you have cancer. Like, no, it's just the situation. Um, but generally... Being a mature adult is operating in the middle of those two extremes and realizing that you almost always have some agency and there are almost always structural situational factors. And I think the self-compassion is realizing the structural situational factors that are not in your control that you can't necessarily change. And then I think the self-discipline is acknowledging those things exist and still showing up and focusing where you have agency. And I think that's just really important because people just, they fall to both sides of the extreme. I saw some quote from someone that I'm not going to name who essentially said that just that, like the situation and the reality doesn't matter. All that matters is what you think about it. Mm. And like, that is, that's delusional. Like by definition, that is having a delusion. But I think the flip side would also be true, which is that, you know, we kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago with free will, which is all that matters is the situation and why even try to make anything better or make a difference. And that's not a very like uh, good way to go about your day either. And I think part of like this self-discipline, self-compassion merges those two things. Yeah, I think that's great. I agree with that. Um, that pretty much covers it, I think. No? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious. I think the one thing I want to ask you, Clay, because I heard you kind of giggle or laugh a little bit when I talked about how if like a workout is programmed between 77 and 81%, all I see is 81%. Do you struggle with that too? Like if you have an optionality, like I could do six to eight repeats, you're just like, I got to do the eight. A hundred percent. I'm laughing because yesterday I had a, my workout that I had was 10 800s at like 310 going down to three minutes. And I ran the first one in like 2.42, which means, first of all, that I'm just setting, I'm, I'm not, my timing is probably way off, but it's just like classic cannot, cannot chill. It's same thing on easy runs. I, I know that like if you're training, you 80% of your runs should really just be steady and easy. And I'm out here on my long runs on the weekend, just like running at tempo pace because I really do struggle. I really do struggle to just do less, which just sounds very obnoxious. Uh, in a lot of ways, I'm very, I'm very lazy and and um, and struggle to get myself motivated, particularly with like writing. Running is the one area where I I I am very disciplined, and I could use a little bit more of the dialing it back. Switch the writing discipline into the growth equation in the podcast <laughs> for the next year, because uh, we're going to need it. Um, in all seriousness, I don't have that exact problem, and maybe I'll help you out of this. So on an easy day, the purpose is for it to be easy. 
And all I care about is nailing that purpose. So like I, I when I was running, I was very good at like staying to a slow pace because in my mind, I'm like, like the whole goal of this is just foot time or active recovery or to yeah. build durability. Yeah. So all I care about is the goal. So that is not a problem for me. What's a problem for me is on a hard day when there's a range of hard, not immediately going to the top of that range. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to get the full stimulus. So if I can get those extra 10 pounds on the bar, I'm going to get more stimulus, even though the cost benefit of getting that more stimulus, if it leads to a higher risk of injury, which is generally not the case because we're not talking about huge jumps, but what it might lead to is a little bit too much fatigue that over time really compounds and then you don't feel fresh when you're supposed to, that's a problem. So maybe Steve, who's actually coached elite athletes can help with this. So like, yes, the goal is to get a hard stimulus. The goal is not to go to the well, but how do you stay at RPE seven instead of drift up to RPE nine when you have a range? Can you say what this, RPE is first? Yeah, sorry. I'm a meathead. RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion. Another way to think of it is reps in reserve. So if I'm doing like a heavy single deadlift and I have a range of between 77 and 81% of max. And the goal is to have two reps in reserve, which simply means I could do two more reps. Well, you can trick yourself into saying you could do two more reps when you really only have one in the tank pretty easily. Or you can just say like, I'm just going to do the 81%, even though the bar feels heavy that day. And you're going to make the lift. So you don't get exact feedback, right? You're going by feel. There's no question I'm going to make the lift. But it's really hard for me to be okay with it feeling like an eight, even if that means I don't hit the top range of what's prescribed. So maybe in running terms, Clay, this would be on a day where the workout is six by 800 and the range is 245 to 255. And you're supposed to be like in an exertion that's not going to kill you. But because you see 245, you hit all your reps at 245, even when you were probably going too hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's do some, this is, this is coaching 101. Um, first off, as a coach, you identify these people uh, on the front end. And I'm serious. You identify these people. You understand the people who are going to go too fast and too hard on rep one and then fade at the end. You identify the people who are going to sandbag at the beginning and then look like workout heroes at the end. Like everyone has their own. And then the person who is going to be a metronome on the exact pace you give them and won't budge even when they need to. You identify all these subtypes of people because they all exist. And then you play with the workout parameters, especially if you have a coach or coaching, you play with the workout parameters to change the incentive or change the goal or in Brad's language, change the purpose. So for example, if you are one of those people who goes out too hard and then like finds themselves digging in a hole, what do you do? You change the purpose of the workout. You say the purpose of the workout is progression, right? It's to run your last rep fastest or your last two reps fastest, or sometimes I'll change it to the second to last rep, the fastest one. Okay. And then still be the idea is you run that the fastest one. So you still have a little enough energy to come back little at the end. So you, you, you just play with the kind of goals and the parameters there to shift that incentive on, on what you're trying to do. And the other things that I'd say there is an individual is, um, 
give yourself, if you can't be strict on the watch or the split or what have you, like give yourself another indicator to pay attention to. So for example, if you're doing, I don't know, mile repeats and you're doing five of them, sometimes I'd say, hey, the goal of this first one is when you finish this mile repeat, I don't want you to be bending over. I don't want you to be out of breath. I want you to be able to say, you know, three full sentences and I'll give the sentences as soon as you're done with this repeat. If you didn't, you did it wrong. We're going to stop. We're going to take a long rest and we're going to do the same thing again. And again, it sounds like kind of childish, but what you are is you're teaching like the feeling, the experience, et cetera, of that. And the last last thing I'd say on Brad's case where you see the, he's the, you know, you give in running terms, you tell him to run between 430 and 440 in the mile and he's always going to run for 430. Um, for those, you give those people an opportunity to let the, the, have the reins be loose and you let them know that so that they more likely stay on the shallow end or the easier end of it. So in an example, again, mile repeats, what I might say is, hey, we're going to win five by mile. The goal is between 440 and 430. But just so you know, like on the last mile, I'm going to have you cut down hard the last 800. Yeah. Why? So they so they know that like okay, there's going to be this big challenge that I need to have some in the reserve for here. So they're more likely to err on on the easy side. And why do you say, hey, let the reins loose for the last 800, or you could even do it the last 400? Because often it's such a small part of the workout that yeah, you're digging a little bit, but it's only such a small part that they're going to bounce back and recover. It's not like they've trashed the whole thing. Yeah, we got to get Zach on here, my coach, because I think this is an area where powerlifting is just different. Because like, if you're working up to a top set single, one repetition, one deadlift, and you've got a range, you don't have like the ability to express or go all out. All you essentially have is like, how do the warmups feel? And like today, I'll use my prime example, like 425 felt really heavy. I probably should have just gone up for my top single to 445 and pulled it with decent bar speed. But I saw that upper end of the range, so I went up to 460 and I hit the lift. It was probably closer to RPE eight and a half to nine when it should have been RPE seven. Now there's two ways to think about it. One is it doesn't really matter because I'm gonna recover fine and my technique is good enough that I'm not risking injury. And that's the more generous way. The less generous or the more neurotic way is, man, if you do that in every single workout, you're going to develop like compounding fatigue that is going to catch up to you and hurt your performance down the road. But I don't know what the tool is in that moment to just have the guts or the confidence to be like, you know, 445, like I'm just going to stay there today because that's what an RPE seven or seven and a half is going to feel like instead of saying, eh, maybe 460 will feel good. You know, maybe it'll feel good. Maybe it'll move up fast, even though I know it's going to be a grind and then I do it anyways. Well, I think, I think there is it, the range is the problem for you. I just need to tell Zach, like, just give me the low end of the range. No, I mean, that's what it means. So like, for example, the running example, and I'll go back to that is, um, I want this at four, you know, 440 for a mile. But if you feel great on your 
you know, you can drop it a little bit. And the example is there is like when you don't have the 460 in your head, you're not going to move to 460 because like that's not there. Maybe maybe you you say, oh, I don't want to be the low end of the range. So instead of 440, I'm going to do 450. But it's still a little bit better, right? You've taken yeah. a, you've taken away that top I think one. Nailed it. I think if it would have been stay at seventy seven percent, stay at four forty five, and if you feel like Superman today, then you can go up and let it rip. But I'm not going to go up and let it rip unless I actually feel like Superman. And most days I don't. Yeah, it's just it's just changing again the the kind of parameters that you use to make that decision because you know you're going to be biased towards the higher one so you've got to give like if it's like feel like superman if it feels like hey this is the easiest lift ever like you give something con- concrete instead of like you know the mistake i've made in the past is like if you feel good like go for it well everyone can convince themselves they feel good right but if you say hey if you feel like if that felt like the easiest 440 mile that, that you've run in the past, you know, three months, then go for it. That gives a comparison point where most people be like, ah, that wasn't the easiest. So I'm going to, I'll just do the minimum here and do what I need to do. Yeah. I love it. I think that that's was great. That was some grade a Magnus method right there. Loved it. <laughs> The magnet. I have a five by mile. I have five by mile uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, so I'm going to use. I'm going to use this technique. I will not be running four thirty to four forty. If I run four thirty, I magic has occurred, and I will certainly have nothing left for the cut down eight hundred at the end. What are you training for right now, Clay? Um, I would like to try to run a one twenty half by end of February, early March. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So what pace is that? That's like six ten, six fifteen. I think it's right around six. Steve, do you know off the top of your head? I should know. I want to say like six oh four. That's impressive. I mean you're a you're like a big dude. You look more like a football player. People are gonna like be like, whoa, this linebacker looks like Elliot (laughs) Kachogi out here. Uh, you, you know, Brad, this is just because you didn't get to go on the runs at the, the growth equation retreat with the rest of us. So I've You're got making it seem like I opted out. The reason I didn't go on the run is because I have COVID, Steve. Yeah. 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 Steve mentioned that I saw some parks in Houston. I saw a park for about 20 minutes and then I got dropped and I was in such oxygen jet that all I saw was a bright white light that I was chasing, <laughs> running, running to the light. I would have been fine. I would have been on all those runs if I didn't have COVID. I would have gotten a um, like a little moped. <laughs> been doing curls on the back. No, I think we should do a growth equation challenge next year, Clay. Like I got to pick a deadlift number. You have to pick a, a running number. And then um, Steve will do something reckless. <laughs> Century club. Century club. <laughs> No, I think the right challenge for Steve would be 30 beers in a week in 100 miles. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Keep him healthy. We don't want to lose Steve. I I mean, we need Steve. As long as my body wouldn't break down, that would be easy. No, the running, I know, but the 30 beers, you could do four beers a day for seven days straight. If you want me to. I mean, I got 24 hours. Remember, I have a... I'm used to get I I, I get up multiple times in the week. Night. You're not sleeping anyways. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Stumble <laughs> <laughs> into the crib, pick up you're the, not, you're the not, daughter. You're, you're not breastfeeding. You've got no, no, no issues. That's, Just that's get, what I mean. Guess you're burning a lot out. of that. You're burning those carbs, you know? Yeah, There's staying up carbs. at night. What? Well, no, Steve's not breastfeeding, Clay. <laughs> no, no, I mean burning the beers on the runs. The oh, I thought right you through. meant you're burning the carbs from breastfeeding, which is also oh. true, but that's no. not Steve's no. department. <laughs> Wow, and we have circled back to milk. I shouldn't have said that, but this is where this is where we are. Oh man, it feels like maybe we should get off the air. I maybe think that's a sign. Get, get off the air. Steve is a man of the masses. Whole milk, <laughs> Bud Light, Miles. Miles, uh, that was great. This was fun. Uh, once again, Google Voice. We want to hear from you guys. Six four six eight nine three five nine zero three. Uh, Matt Gamble, if you're out there, give us a call. Drink responsibly. Everyone else, thanks for listening. Uh, hope you got something good out of this today. And yeah, be compassionate with yourself, but be disciplined. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye.